Acts chapter 11 will be in verses 19 through 30. If you want to turn in your Bibles, hope you have those. If you don't have one, uh, you can follow along on the slide up above. Follow along your own Bibles as I uh, read God's Word aloud. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Paul. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, we saw um, last week um, a great shift in the book of Acts and a great shift within redemptive history as the gospel vistas open to the Gentiles, that for much of uh, biblical history, the salvation in God's people have, has been the people of Israel, and if, even in the Old Testament, though, there have been ways in which Gentiles could come to know the Lord and be joined to the Lord, but the rules and the, the traditions were always that if you were to follow the Lord and follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, follow the true creator, Yahweh, one had to become a Jew. The men had to be circumcised. You had to take on the traditions and the laws of the Jewish people. But we saw last week that in this, this vision that Peter has of these uh, unclean animals coming down on the sheet, that God says, do not declare unclean things that I have declared to be clean. And here is the great shift in Acts that now the, the gospel now is going to burst forth to the ends of the earth. And the inclusion of the Gentiles is going to be Luke's main theme. Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and it's going to be his main theme for really the rest of this book, as we will see, moving forward, beginning in chapter 13, and carrying on to the very end through Acts 28. But before this, before he gets to this as being the primary and the central theme, beginning in chapter 13, Luke gives us two little vignettes between the time that he gives this vision to Cornelius and to Peter, and the gospel opens to the Gentiles, and the time in which he will begin to focus on that entirely, he gives these two small stories. One we're going to look at probably next week as we're going to look at Peter and his prison sentence and the death of Herod and the one we have this morning, which is where the gospel goes to the pagans in Antioch. And what is critical and the part of the reason why I think Luke has this in here is because Antioch will function as the launching base for the great missional work that's going to happen to the rest of the worlds. Antioch, you could not come up with a more strategic city from which to center Gentile mission and mission to the rest of the world. 
But what I want you to see this morning is behind this strategy, the strategy of launching from Antioch instead of Jerusalem, of launching from this particular place, behind this Christian mission, the strategy of it is not the well-thought-out plan of missionaries, but is the strategy of the Lord. In fact, what I want you to see is that the gospel going to this incredibly strategic city this morning is the work of the Lord indeed. In fact, it says in Acts 11, verse 21, that how did they get there? It says, in the hand of the Lord, and it was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. It is also stated that in Acts 2, 47, that whenever the gospel goes forth, it is the work of the hand of the Lord. In fact, the Lord is mentioned five or six times in this short 11 verses. And we see this focus on the kingship and the lordship of God and his sovereign rule over the earth. And so what I want you to see this morning, and the main thing that we're going to be looking at, is that God in his sovereignty has a strategy. He has a strategy. That he has, he has sovereignly ordained the ends... He has said that I, am, I have ordained both, I will control the waters and the waves, I control all of creation, I control the birds of the air, and I control the flowers of the field, I control those who will be saved, I control all things, all eternal things. But he's also determined the means by which he will bring about those ends. And those means are is his plan, it's his strategy. We often in the church, at least in particular, our particular ilk of the church, we don't necessarily think that strategy is something that we should take part in, but that seems too pragmatic. But what I want you to see this morning is that God has definitely had a plan, and he definitely has a strategy, and in his providence, he brings it about this morning, and so that's our theme this morning, to looking at the reigning Lord Jesus Christ, carrying out his strategy, his sovereign strategy to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. I'm going to look at it in five points that you'll see this morning how God's strategy has worked out. The first is this, is we see strategic suffering, strategic suffering. Now listen, if you've been with us for most of our time in Acts, this is a theme that has come up throughout this book already. That God in particular, that beginning in chapter 3 and 4 of Acts, that when the persecution begins to strike, and particularly after the death of Stephen in chapter 7, when persecution strikes the church in Jerusalem, what happens? Everyone runs. And the great part of it is they run to various parts of the world and they take the gospel and the good news with them. They are forced out of Jerusalem. In many ways, they are forced out of the Middle East. And therefore, the gospel is then exploded onto the world stage. And I'm not going to take very long in this because we looked at this at very other places within our time together in Acts. But just to highlight this once again, that God uses our sufferings. He is strategic in the sufferings that he is bringing into our lives, the persecutions that he is utilizing in history and in our lives to take his gospel, his message to the worlds. Just a couple of illustrations of this for you this morning. First of this, many of you may, may know this. Some of you, that there are many, used to be many, many Christians in North Korea. In the 1930s, actually, thousands of Christians were, were pushed out of North Korea and pushed into, particularly into Russia, because of great persecution. And many of those Christians that were in the northern Korea area, when they took, when they went with them, what went with them when they went to Russia? The gospel. They took the gospel with them. And they went into a particular city called Vladivostok, which was a military industrial city. And then World War II starts. And Stalin, being the rather paranoid person that he is, doesn't like so many Koreans hanging around his military industrial complex. And so he says, listen, you guys got to move. And he ships these northern Koreans to five different places around the Russian worlds. And what do they do then? They take the gospel to various places around the Russian world, in particular, an area that is known to be a particularly the Russian Muslim area. 
And what we see in, in actually in 1990, there ends up being a gathering of, of Christians who used to be Muslims who had come to interact with these northern Koreans over the course of those 40 and 50 years. And there was 200,000 Muslim Uzbek people who got together for a large gathering of people who used to be Muslim and are now Christians. The gospel going forward in waves each time it used various forms of persecution. My daughter this week got to spend a week at camp at what was called Johnny and Friends Camp. Some of you know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. She was a, a beautiful young woman who has great artistic abilities and skills. And at 17 years of age, she jumps off a dock and jumps into a lake only to break her neck. And spends years in rehabilitation, never gains use of the lower part of her body. But God has used her in the midst of her suffering. And this is not a suffering that was easily bought. It took years for her to come to terms with these things and the sovereignty of God in her suffering. But God has used her mightily in her sorrow and her suffering to engage the disabled people of this world. Those who God has given this, this severe mercy of a disability. My daughter got to go and participate this week in a camp that she runs for families where they give the breaks to parents who are caring for young ones who are disabled and that you go and that they have volunteers come in and you spend each and every day going to activity after activity caring for these children and giving a break to these parents who have so much, their, their role of parenting takes on so much more than the, the normal average parents. But what we see here is that God's suffering, God uses these things for his glory and for the advancement of his gospel. Your sorrows and your sufferings are in God's plan. They are not outside of it. It is strategic to God's proclamation of the gospel. Second, we see God not only has a strategic suffering, but we see a strategic city. And here we come more primarily to the text we look at today in the city of Antioch. Antioch is a Greek city. It is there that is dominated by the, the main language of the, of the day, which is Greek. It was the lingua franca, which is, you, you may have all kinds of dialects or some kind of ethnic background, some ethnic language, but that day, it, it, the common language was Greek. And the gospel goes to this city, this new outreach to Antioch, to the Gentiles and the pagans there. And it becomes essentially what is known as the first international city. Because Antioch was, it was this port city built about 15 miles inland from the Mediterranean on a river called the Orontes, going to the northern Syria and what's now southern Turkey. It was a beautiful city. In fact, it was known as one of the most beautiful city of antiquities. It had a, one of those areas where it had a paved sidewalk through the, through the middle of the town with bushes or, and, and, and trees that grew up through the middle part of the city. It had a great architecture and great art, many fine buildings. It was known as a jewel of the Roman Empire. It was also quite large. There were over half a million people that lived in Antioch. And it was cosmopolitan. It was a world city. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. But Antioch had the strategic place of being along the spice routes and the silk routes, which means not only do you find Jews there, which there was a massive population of Jews in that city, and not only do you find Greeks and Romans there, but you would find people from all over Persia, Asia, China, and India that would spend time and even have come to live in that city. It was kind of like what we think of London or New York City to be today. People from all tribes and tongues seemed to converge in Antioch. It was a center of trade, but it was also a pagan city. It was debauched. It was known for its sexual promiscuity to such a degree that even Romans looked at Antioch and said, we ain't as bad as them. 
In fact, they had a whole city, like a suburb, just outside the center city of Antioch that was essentially known as Sexual City. It was imagined Sin City, think Vegas, but they put it in proximity to where they lived so they could easily get to it. That's, that's the type of city that Antioch was. And so we find it's this beautiful, massive, cosmopolitan, pagan city, and the gospel goes here. But when the gospel goes to a diverse, cosmopolitan city, this is quite strategic for mission, isn't it? You see, what we find in the church there, if you were to turn over to Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, we see a little snapshot of the leaders of the church in Antioch, and here's what it says. Now, there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, and it lists their names, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And what we see here is if you were to go through all those names, look at the diversity of these five men. Barnabas. He's a Cypriotic Jew. He's a bicultural Jew. Simeon, he's from Niger. That means he's a black African. Then we have uh, Lucius of Cyrene. He was northern African, which means he is primarily, he, has, he, would, have, um, he would be brown-skinned. He would be Arabic. So you see all these different groups. And then we have Saul. Who, who's Saul? Saul is a Jewish professor. He's an academic. We have this multi-ethnic, multi-class, multi-racial church being brought together in Antioch. And so the issue is, and the beauty is this, if a church can make it in Antioch, it can make it anywhere. Right, isn't that the great Frank Sinatra song, New York, New York? What's the great line that's so well known? If I can make it here, I can make it anywhere. And that's true for the gospel. If the gospel can make inroads in Antioch, it can make inroads anywhere because everybody from everywhere lived in Antioch. So here's what the application for us is to drive it home a little bit more for us here. We don't, we don't live in New York City, do we? You, haven't, might, you might have not noticed that. Like, some of you are from, you're like from the real podunks, and you're like, Carrollton, it's massive. It's just too big for me. <laughs> but this ain't, no, this ain't no New York City. I mean, you're hearing, you're hearing English and English and a little more English. The question is whether you have like northern Georgian or like eastern Alabama dialect in your English. That's about the only questions here. But yet this is a strategic place. God has placed us here. You know why? Because we have a university. Ben Weber was actually meeting with uh, international students. Uh, one of the people who leads the international group at University of West Georgia. Guess what? One of the CEO is going to lead one of their fellowship events at the beginning of the year. Now Hamilton, is it you who's running that? No, man, that's going to be a goat rodeo. Uh, but, uh, but we have an opportunity to engage with international students who have come here. But all of that, this has been the history of our small little church. We ain't big, and we never have been. And there's a good chance we never will be, because this is a sending city. This is a place where people come, they go to school, and then they leave. Now, there are some of us who will be here for 30 and 40 and 50 years. But do you know that the history of campus outreach and the history of King's Chapel of this place run parallel with one another? And this has been the place where while we have not been the great ones that everyone knows our names, that there are those who have left this place and been sent out to do mission in places like Lexington and Brazil and Augusta and Birmingham and Dallas, people get sent out. Listen, that some, I don't know whether that was on purpose or an accident in our past, but we want that to continue to go on. We have a program here in our church, a ministry called Vision Pathways, in which we, are, we want to particularly attract 23, 24, 25-year-olds who would stay here for a couple extra years, see what life in a good church is like, and to be sent out. We're not going to send you to the fellows program, by the way. We don't want you to go to another program that's just like us. 
We want to send you out to plant churches and to go do your jobs in various places around our country. We may be a sending place, yes, in a small church like this, that you can come and spend two and three and four and five years and learn how to be married and how to raise children and how to do your work well and faithfully and be a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ in this place. Listen, I can't necessarily say that if you can share the gospel here, you can share it anywhere. But listen, you can, get, you can get the great foundations that you need to be sent out as missions, as missionaries to the world, and that's proved true in the 30 years that this church has existed. So strategic suffering, second, strategic city. And third, I want you to see that God also has given us a strategic ministry. But it doesn't look really fancy as we would often think of strategic ministry looking like. I'm going to break this down into three parts. So instead of giving you seven total points this morning, I'm going to give you five with there being three parts to point three. So A, B, and C. So we, first, I want you to see the strategic message that we have here. Listen, listen can you imagine how intimidating it would be? First, you know, for people like us. Yeah, I'm from Carrollton, from Columbus, from LaGrange. God forbid, from Clem. <laughs> and here we are. You could be in New York City. New York, New York, right? Or London, how intimidating that would be. Look, lots of art, great trade, beautiful people, lots of immorality. And you'd go, my goodness, we've got to come up with a cool way to share the gospel here. We've got to come up with some fancy ways of doing it. We've got to get really relevant. Is that what happens? What gets, these, what gets through to these people? What gets through to the, to the people of Antioch? Verse 20, they go and they do what? They preach the Lord Jesus. They preach the Lord Jesus, the simplicity of the gospel message. They preach that Jesus is Savior, and they preach that he is Lord. Now, there is some cultural relevance there. But I want, before we get to that, I just want, I just want you to see how simple this is. That God, listen, we have all these magazines, like relevant magazines, and, we, and I have communicated it various times going through Acts. We should be relevant. We should engage with, speak the language of people culturally. But all nations and all peoples are in desperate need of the gospel. And the Spirit of God primarily works through plain, simple speaking and preaching and teaching the gospel. You notice who gets the gospel into Antioch? Two nameless guys. It's not stud apostles. It ain't Paul. It isn't Barnabas. It's not Peter. It's two guys who don't even get their names mentioned in the book. And yet they go and faithfully preach the gospel, and the gospel moves forward. Now, there is cultural relevance, and here's the cultural relevance. They don't necessarily come and preach Christ Jesus, although that's, going to be, that's clearly going to be a name that they use, and we're going to see in just a minute. But when they preach Jesus is Lord, now this would have been important because any, any person who was a part of the Roman Empire would have grown up and known that, you, what do you say about Caesar? Kaiseros, Kyrios. Caesar is Lord. This is a very deliberate gospel proclamation that says, he ain't king, Jesus is. You serve this king here on this earth. You've been serving Caesar, but there is a better king who has come to be your savior, and his name is Jesus. So this is good news because this is a gospel that reached people. So we see the strategic message within the strategic ministry. But second, I also want to see the method. What is, what is Barnabas shows up, and what does he use to proclaim the gospel? What's the method of, of ministry that they carry on besides just the simple gospel proclamation? Well, it says that Barnabas shows up and he exhorts the believers in verse 23. Now, this word exhort, the Greek word for it is the word parakaleo. and has two parts to it. Kaleo, as you can hear it there, means call. 
It's called. It is the bold proclamation. It is the, you know, when you talk to your friends, I mean, I got to call that brother out. It is a challenge. It is getting up in somebody's face. It is speaking the truth. That's what calling is. But it comes with this other word, right? Para, which means around or within or with. This has the, the, the idea of sympathy, of tenderness, of encouragement, of being next to. In other words, the language that is being given here, the type of ministry that they had ongoing was when they proclaimed the gospel, they did so in a way that challenged people with truth, but they did it in a relationally and tender and compassionate way that they engaged in people's lives. They came alongside them to proclaim the gospel. It's both forceful and it's compassionate. It is truthful and it's loving in the way they went about their ministry. And then we also see in their method is it was intentional and it was intense. We see that Barnabas, he goes and gets Saul, and we're going to look at that in just a second. But he goes and gets Saul, and it says for a year, they daily are teaching and training. That it is not simply about, hey, let's get people in the seats, let's preach the gospel to them one time, let's get them baptized, and then we're all good. But it is an intense teaching and training of the people that this is what it looks like to apply the gospel in your life with tenderness and yet with courage and boldness communicating, brother, that isn't right. This is the truth of God's word. Here's how the gospel calls you out. It's interesting. We actually see this very clearly. And I've mentioned this many other times, but Paul, and the way he challenges Peter later on in Galatians, when Peter is not eating with Gentiles, he's essentially carrying out a form of prejudice and discrimination and that he won't eat with Gentiles. And Peter calls him out and he says, Peter, you're not living in line with the gospel. In other words, what he, what he, he challenges him. That's the jab. That's the truth. But it's tenderness because the way he challenges him, they go, no, 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 Peter, stop it. No, he says, no, Jesus died for you, Peter. He died to break down these walls. This is out of line with the gospel, the tenderness of it, pushing it in, massaging the truth in for a whole year. This is the method of their ministry. I want you to see third is the strategic multiplication of their ministry. Barnabas is there. He's doing ministry. Now, Barnabas, nowhere do we see him as necessarily being a great teacher. He probably knew the gospel. That's great. But nowhere do we see Barnabas preaching. And so what does Barnabas go do? He goes and gets this guy, Saul, who, as you will later be known, he's like a rapper, right? He'll be known as Paul later on. And he's going to go and get him. He goes 100 miles to Tarsus, where, by the way, Saul has been just hanging out for like seven years. You don't necessarily get the sense as you read Acts. But Saul gets saved. He goes to Jerusalem. Hey, they try to kill him in Jerusalem. So they say, hey, Saul, you can't be here. He leaves. He goes back to his hometown in Tarsus. He hangs out for seven or eight years. And we don't necessarily know what he was doing. But we, we think, because of various tidbits of what he says in various letters, that he was probably learning how to teach the gospel. And most likely he got disowned by his family and began to be persecuted. He was learning how to be a pastor in Tarsus. But Barnabas goes and says, you know what? I can't do this ministry alone. And then second, I want to take somebody with me. And so what does he do? He goes and gets Saul. And he says, Saul, we're going to minister this church together. I'm going to teach you, Saul, who's very truth-oriented, how to be loving because I'm the son of encouragement. In other words, when you do ministry, you want to preach the gospel. You want to massage it in with truth and tenderness. And then third, you want to take somebody with you. Multiply yourself. Wherever you go, this is the blessing of my life. My dad, my dad was a pastor as well. My dad, when he'd go on hospital visits, guess who he took? Moi. My dad, when he would go to church 
administrative meetings called presbytery meetings, which like will make you go cross-eyed with their boredom. He, guess who he took? Me. I would sit in the back rows of old churches during presbytery meetings and work on my math. Saxon math kids, I did it at presbytery meetings. Another, my dad took me with him wherever he wanted, he went. The guy who taught me how to do kind of um, cold calling evangelism, walk up to somebody at the University of Florida, was the guy who was the director of Campus, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ there. And when he, we were beginning to engage on how to do this, what did we do? Sir, he walked through me the four spiritual laws. He said, here's the tract. And then he said, all right, we're going to go talk to people. Oh, okay, we're doing this? All right, good. And we just went, he'd go out, walk up to somebody, begin talking about their faith, and then I would do it, back and forth, back and forth. Take somebody with you. Listen, you can do this at work. You can do it here. You don't have to be a discipleship group leader to do this. You can be a deacon. And parents, you can do this as well. In fact, one of the great excuses that, that, that middle-class evangelical parents have is this. I'm just too busy. And it's not just not safe to do mission. Well, you know what? How about this? You want time with your kids? Find a mission that you can take them with you on and go and take them with you. So that's the strategy. It's the strategy Cole causes us to use to preach the salvation and lordship of Jesus Christ with steadfast preaching and, preaching and teaching with love and truth and then take somebody with you. It's strategic. It's simple. Fourth, fourth strategy God in his sovereignty has given this church is he gives them a strategic name. There's a little editorial note by Luke saying that it was in Antioch, in verse 26 of the second half of that verse, that in Antioch, that the disciples of Jesus were first known as Christians. It was a nickname of sorts. Kind of like back in the day, you know that Methodists haven't always been Methodists? They were Anglicans. And then there was this group of people that kind of got together around John Wesley, and they had all these methods by which they tried to grow spiritually, and they started to be called Methodists. And they were like, well, shoot, if you're going to make fun of us, we're bailing. And they pieced out and started their own denomination. But they're known as Methodists because of the methodical way in which they organized their Christian life. But like so many nicknames, it tells us of the popular perception of the Christians. We take it for granted about that word now. It tells us the perception of the disciples of Jesus. And I think it tells us, tells us too much, so much about who we are to be as Christians. First, I want you to see that in the Greek word Christos, was the Greek word for Messiah, or the anointed one, or the anointed king. You see, they wouldn't have thought like Hebrews thought. When they heard the word Messiah or Christos, they would have thought of this long-awaited Messiah that's been promised. When someone, with a, when a Greek-speaking or a Roman person hears this word Christos, they think of anointed one, one who does do some saving work, but in particular, they're actually thinking of a king. That's who gets anointed in their mind. And so when they come and they say they're speaking the word Christos or Christian, they're saying they're the ones of the followers of the king. The followers of Jesus were thinking and speaking in such a way that they were the king's people, the Messiah, the Christ, the Christ king. The word formation was really similar here to the various political groups that they would have called people back in the day. For example, if you're a Herodian, which were the people who followed Herod and his rule in Jerusalem, they were called the Herodians. If you were um, Caesar's people, they would call you in the Greek, Kaiser Anoi, the Caesar's people. And so what we find here is that Christianoi, which is the little Greek word they would have called them, means Christ people. That this is who they are. This is the mark of, of the disciples of Jesus. It emphasized and made very clear that they made known who they were following. And it was, everybody knew it. 
So much so that it became simply just a nickname for them, the Christ people. There's a great missionary and pastor named um, Henry Ironside who said he, when he was traveling in China and beginning to do some preaching there, there was a Chinese word that people would call him as he'd come into the town, which was Yasuyan. And he kept hearing this, people would point to him and go, Yasuyan. And he was like, oh man, I don't know what that is. Am I a goat? Or something like that. He, somebody finally told him, they said, you're the Jesus man. But this is who we are to be, the Jesus people. Now listen, there was an awful song about 20 years ago called Jesus Freaks that came out by DC Talk. Now listen, if, if, in some ways I want to point back to that, but we should be known that the voice, the name on our tongues more than anything else, what we should be known more for more than anything else in our lives is that we belong to Jesus. That yes, you should be uncool in this way. That's the Jesus guy in our office. Yeah, he's always talking about Jesus. That's what they were doing, literally. And it, yes, it was a scoffing. It was a nickname of derision. But they took it on, and they owned it. But the second thing I want you to see as well is this. I want you to see this goes a step further, because being called a Christian revealed the center of their lives and the identity that they took upon themselves. Think about this. This is an international church in which there is African and Arab and Jew and Greek and Roman. Now, at that time... Almost all religions were ethnically based. So, if, right, and we even think this way today, right? If you're Irish, you're Roman Catholic. If you're an Arab, you think, oh, you're probably a Muslim. If you're from somewhere in Asia, we're like, well, okay, I'm just going to assume. It's a big place, but we'll just go, you're Hindu. Because we're Americans, that's how we think in broad, extremely broad generalizations. But the thing how they thought then that usually your religion was tied to your ethnicity, but they don't know how to label these people because they're looking and going, that guy should be a Muslim, and that guy should be a Roman Catholic, and that guy should be Hindu based on their ethnicity, but they're all serving this Jesus guy. What I want you to see is that the main identity that each of these people has is not the fact that they are Republicans or Democrats. It was not that they were French, Italian, or American, it was their primary, primary identity in life was Jesus. And because of that, it united them together. You don't get to be an international church unless people of various nationalities are all together. And so what we want to see here is that there, is, there has been a great debate over the last 15 or 20 years amongst like, people who talk about these things, is should we, should we bail on the term Christian? In fact, this was one of the great debates this past year because, right, there was, you know, you look at the stats, there's like this many people, this many Christians support Trump, and some people were so appalled by him that they were like, listen, we've got to try to separate this. It, but this, this the conversation was going on long before him. Has this name taken on so much junk? Do we need to abandon this name? And what I would say is, listen, this is not a Bible-ordained name to be called Christian. But you know what, the, the, the thing that we ought to do, instead of going whether we abandon this, should, maybe we should redeem the word again. Maybe we should go back to what it actually means instead of letting Democrats and Republicans and their pundits use us and manipulate us, and instead of letting sociologists describe us and label us, and instead we declare what it means to be a Christian by being a people who are Jesus' men and women and be a people who have no other identity. All their identities are small, are nothing, are hateful compared to this identity that we have in Jesus. Fourth, fourth strategic, the strategy we see in God's sovereignty is strategic generosity. 
Pick it up in verse 27. I'll read through verse 30 just to remind you of the end of the chapter. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there was a, be a great famine over the, all the whole worlds. By the way, Agabus comes up later on in Acts. He does the same thing. Paul's about to go to Jerusalem. Agabus comes to Ephesus and goes, Paul, you're going to die. Poor Agabus, right? He's got the job in the New Testament. They're like, oh, no, here comes Agabus. It's, get ready for some bad news, people. Is it famine or is Paul going to get his head chopped off? We're not sure. So Agabus comes and he prophesies that there's going to be this great famine, which historically has been proven to be true. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. They send money to Jerusalem. It's interesting, it's here in Antioch that for the first time in recorded human history. Academics have looked at this. This is the first place in recorded human history in which we see a people from one race or multiple races sending money and caring for another race. In which they were living out the fact of what their greater identity was. They were no longer Persians or Asians or Chinese or Greek. They were Christians. And their unified identity is lived out through their generosity. And I want you to see the strategic nature of this gift. It's strategic because it connects Jew and Gentile together. You might remember in the last chapter, there's this great debate in the Jerusalem church when these Gentiles are starting to become Christians and, and people are going, wait a second, this isn't, I thought, this isn't how it's supposed to work. Our religion is supposed to be Jewish, and so they're all supposed to become Jews. And there's some people, and they're going, okay, well, we'll accept this, but we're really kind of weirded out by this. And there is even some people within the Jewish church who are called Judaizers, and they go, no, this ain't good. We'll never accept those guys. We'll never accept them into the church. And what do we see here? What do we see? We see, the, we see these Gentile believers who are so caring for the church in Jerusalem, people who are wary about them, that they care for them. Now, what do you think that did relationally between the Gentile church and the church in Jerusalem? It probably built trust. And now there's a connection. These people are living out of their walk with the Lord, and they're loving on us. We have an appreciation for what they're doing. The first Christians were known as the king's people because they lived out of that reality and were generous with it. And then also want to see the strategy for mission going around the world. Now, if you're Paul, now there are, many, there are a number of people in this room who are either raising support or, all, or they're always raising support if they're on staff with CO. Some of you have children who've raised support for summer missions. Now, if you're going to raise support, it's nice to know people of income, isn't it? There ain't a better place in the world to raise money for missions projects than Antioch at this time. It's the heart of trade. It is wealthy the people who become believers in Antioch have dinero. They have money. And in fact, this becomes the place, three mission trips, three journeys that take years and years, Paul carries out in what's going to be the, what's going to be the rest of the unfolding of Acts, are these various mission trips. The people who support Paul, Antioch. But these people that from the very beginning, the great fruit of God in their life is they're generous. And it becomes strategic in the taking and the proclamation of the gospel around the world. Now, here's the question that we're going to go to the table. This has not been the most, like, cross-centered sermon ever. A lot of good stuff here. I want to drive to the cross for just one second. Where in the world do you think a bunch of, of Gentile Christians would have gotten the idea of giving their money away to a people who hate them? 
of laying down their lives with people who for centuries have rejected them, the Jews, who are questioning whether they even want to accept them. Where do you think they would have gotten such an idea to lay down their lives for such a people? It's called the cross. Where these people have come to understand in the gospel that there was one who they had rejected, who they had despised, who they wanted nothing to do with, and left his throne in heaven to exhibit enormous generosity in the plan of salvation, to die for them. This is, in fact, what Paul says in Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10, and we'll read this and then go to the table. It says, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Lavished. He didn't just drip it out. He poured out his love in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth as a plan, strategy, in the fullness of time to unite to him all things, things in heaven and things on earth. Where do a bunch of Gentiles get the idea of pouring themselves out for the sake of unity and a strategic plan to unite themselves with the Jews? Jesus himself, the cross of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, whether, whether your nationality or your party affiliation, if you know Jesus, I invite you to come to the table this morning to partake in the forgiveness and the cleansing work of Jesus who has poured himself out for you. Let's pray and let's go to the table. If you're serving, if you would, come forward. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who is wise. And Lord, in our human, from our human perspective, your plan often looks foolish. It looks impossible. And yet from death, you defeated death. By sending your son to die for us. Lord, from a people who are not reconciled, a people who are separated from you and separated from one another, you united us through Jesus, through his generosity. Lord, we thank you for your plan that has been unfolding, that was once a mystery, that we are more and more coming to understand it through your word. The plan to both unite us to you, Jesus, and unite us to one another. And so, Lord, we come now to the unifying table, to the one who unites us, our King and our Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come to the table, that, Lord, we would renounce all other allegiances, that they would be as nothing compared to our allegiance to King Jesus. And when we come to celebrate, to remember what it costs to bring us into your family, to unite us back to you, the fact that your body, the bread here that represents your body, was broken to take on the wrath that we deserved, that your blood was shed to make us clean, to pour forth your righteousness upon us. Lord, we thank you for this truth. We come to remember it. Lord, I pray that you would move through this bread and through this cup, Lord, to move in us our greater identity in you, to give us a longing and affection for the name of Jesus, and to unite us together. May your grace and your mercy be poured forth in this room, even as we take up these physical elements. We thank you for Jesus and all his work for us. In his name we pray, amen.